Hey fellow g and those of us who like our spirituality with a twist, in this third episode of our four-part series, we continue our discussion with the jovial and enlightening tantric teacher Glenn H. Mullen, or simply Lama Glenn to his students. The long version of his bio is in the intro to the first episode, but even the short version is still pretty long, so here goes. Lama Glenn traveled to the Indian Himalayas in the early 70s, where he first met the Dalai Lama. He stayed on as a student for 12 years, studying with 35 of the greatest living masters of the Tibetan tradition. Drawing on those experiences, he has authored over 30 books and become an international teacher of Tantric Buddhism. Lama Glenn has also been an avid advocate for Buddhist art, curating important art exhibitions and advocating for contemporary artists of the East in the West. He is currently at work on a book on Nicholas Rorik, the great Russian painter, spiritual thinker, and social activist. Lama Glenn is also the special advisor to the Rorik House Museum and Institute in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, which I personally helped create by making a very modest donation of support. But every little bit helps, right? which is just a way of bringing up the philanthropic aspect of Lama Glenn's work, supporting meaningful spiritual, creative, and humanitarian causes. So if you have the resources and never want to support some noble causes, Lama Glenn is a good and reliable conduit for that kind of generosity. Finally, he is also an expert in travel to the sacred sites of the Himalayas. He leads tours and acts as a consultant to those wanting to travel safely and meaningfully through those sacred sites. Okay, in this episode, Lama Glenn serves up a full-on, overflowing, and spiritually intoxicating cocktail glass of gin and tantra. He was really on a roll. Actually, as someone who has known him for a decently long time, this is really one of my favorites of his unique presentations of tantric thought and practice. He talks about how to seek a personally, tantrically meaningful and joyful life in a world too often run by thugs and buffoons. <laughs> and outlines the Buddhist practices that help one do that, including creatively seeing the world as joyful, divine, and interconnected, and overcoming what Einstein called optical delusion. Hmm. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jin and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail your spirit has been longing for. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. You know, and I mean, it is kind of a random speculation on my part, but I think in the West, our economic systems are completely obsolete. They're all based on sort of colonial capitalist rape and pillage. The earth policies needs yeah. a total restructure of the economy. Our way of um, spending our daily time, what is meaningful activity and meaningful pursuits has to be revised. Our approach to medicine, health, well-being has to be revised. Our approach to family, child, child rearing has to be revised. And uh, if we can get those four or five things done. <laughs> also, I would like to see one environmental tradition brought in from Genghis Khan. With Genghis Khan, he made the rule that if anyone pollutes earth, water, fire, or air, there's no 
redemption. It's a death sentence. Mm. So I think yeah. that would be a very, very good solution to our present environmental crisis. We could probably we just in the United States use able. some steep fines just to like get the ball rolling. No, 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 no. <laughs> Go all the way. The then, then the rich, the rich will still abuse it. We have those fines now well, under, that's, that's under true. the that's EPA true. in the states. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's one reason why some people hate the EPA is because all you have to do is give the EPA twenty five thousand dollars a year in a fine, and it's kind of a license to dump toxic chemicals wherever you want and save yourself a half a billion dollars. You know, you know I, I think Genghis Khan had the right policy. Uh, it should be the death sentence. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> I am really fascinated by what you're saying, though, Lama Glenn, because I've been thinking about that a lot, too. Those five or six things you mentioned, I mean, when you really look at it, honestly, that's where the whole culture kind of just went, right? And I Yeah, it yeah. uh, sort of comes out of, I think, a combination of colonialism linked to the Industrial Revolution, linked to this pre-Semitic religions, you know, the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims, that God created the world for us to enjoy. Now, if you look at those three teachings in a deeper way, you could say, made us caretakers of the world. <laughs> but people don't take it that way. They took it, they take it like that oil under the earth is mine. I can frack it. Or that, that sacred mountain has gold. I can blow it up and use harmful chemicals that poison the rivers for the next thousand miles. You know, it's amazing that outside Chicago, fish caught in the Lake Superior, the first of the lakes, is often too toxic for the fish to be eaten. And if you go downstream, by the time you get to Toronto, just if you fall in the lake, which I did one time, because a boat came in, uh, when a ferry boat came in from Toronto on Toronto Island, and a little kid fell in right in front of the boat when it was there, when, just when the boat was 10 feet away. And luckily I was standing right there. So I dived in and grabbed the kid and hung on because those propellers spin like that, right? Mm -hmm a kid would have been chopped up to hamburger. But we both need to get shots. That's <laughs> <laughs> the one thing now you have to deal with the other thing, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the lake is so polluted that even like falling in it requires a shot. <laughs> mm. So the thing, you know, Daniel and I are doing this, uh, this little podcast venture we're a part of now, you know, those things that you're mentioning, we sort of look at I don't know how you feel about this, Daniel, but for me, it is kind of like we recognize that those are the problems where the culture's kind of gone awry. Mm -hmm. And in a part, we're trying to reach out to other people who are just trying to find their way within this, this space, you know, uh, you know, and having, you know, people like you on to share your wisdom about how to do that. But yeah, I think that's the recognition. I think that's even the whole motivation in doing this, just that the idea like, yeah, something has gone awry. You know, it's affecting on a on a macro level, but on the micro level, you know, you still have to try to find your personal way within this. It's like not an easy situation. And I guess that's the motivation for us even doing this. Yeah, I mean, all of us alive today, I mean, the, the amount of public attention on the desperateness of the planetary situation is not a secret or an esoteric scientific fact 
known only by a few elite educated intellectuals. <laughs> mm-hmm. The environmental situation is well known to everyone. The danger of the military situation with, you know, probably 20 countries having nuclear bombs and some of, us, some of those countries having dozens of nuclear bombs. And, uh, you know, the state of the, uh, the economical situation with, I mean, America, what is it, one or 2% of the people being very, very, very wealthy and 20 or 30 million people living well below the poverty line. In China, of course, it's the same. And Europe's gotten around a little bit that way by sort of having a little bit of a welfare society, but that's really a patchwork on the situation. It's not a solution to the situation, just uh, giving handouts to those for whom the social structure has placed them in a desperate situation. Uh, A handout is a temporary solution, not a long-term solution. And the other biggest problem we have as humans, I think, is finding a meaningful life or meaning in life. And uh, there's a lot of interesting psychological research done on this, medical research done it, quite a bit of literature out there on it. But the key to happiness often is not how much you have or what your living situation is, or even if your wife and kids are that well behaved. It's really your own sense of the meaningfulness of your days and nights, (laughs) of the meaningfulness of your life, a sense of purpose, a sense of value, something like that. And uh, I think in the Western world, that's become very, very serious because we used to have not really so much of a link to what we are doing as being fulfilling because the industrial revolution brought in this kind of educational system where people are basically, school is basically a polytech to produce workers or executives inside the industrial complex and a big international financial complex. It's basically a career training device. And the problem there is we really see what we do as a way to pay our bills. Yeah. That isn't very meaningful for people. If you don't have meaning beyond that, I mean, of course, it is important to pay your bills. I'm not to say that not having meaning isn't important. But there's no sense of the fulfillment of life, the rigors of life, the demands of life, the uh, blood, sweat, and tears that life entails <laughs> with, you know, all the kinds of ups and downs that come with every year from, you know, house fires and tornadoes and earthquakes and friends dying, wife and kids getting cancer and dying and all these kind of things. If paying the bills were enough, then that would be wonderful. But as we notice, as studies show, it's really not enough but a sense of a deeper meaning in life and a way of processing the vicissitudes is really something that has to be explored. One reason I love Nicholas Rorick, and as you know, I'm presently in in retreat doing a book on Nicholas Rorick. Maybe you could tell a little bit about uh, that project and who Rorick is. Yeah. One reason I love him very much is, uh, I love him as an artist, of course. He's one of the great artists of the early part of the last century. 
but as a social thinker. He mm. came up with this idea after World War I that until now, the planet has largely been run by thugs and buffoons. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he managed to convince a few billionaires in New York that this was the case and had one of them build something called the Masters Institute in New York City, which would try to get the, like the genius social scientists, political scientists, engineers, uh, financial wizards and so on, get them all in one building designing a kind of a new world order, which would actually work. Because until now, it's sort of been, you know, buffoon versus buffoon. If you look at World War I, it's a perfect example of that. You look at the Napoleonic Wars in, in Europe, a perfect example. Look at the way colonialism raped and pillaged country after country, you know, burning down libraries in South America, like the Mayan Indians, all of their culture being destroyed they're all of their vast scientific and social literature all being destroyed before anyone had even read it <laughs> outside of the most of those Mayans that are thereafter sort of not really allowed to pursue their traditional training for education. So having buffoons and thieves and brigands and thugs run things is not really the best way to go. And with, that's really what we've had in the West uh, really for the last four or 500 years, I think. And, uh, you know, we've brought us to this near extinction of our planet as uh, people like Al Gore and the such like to stay comment from repeatedly. And there, you know, it's quite true that we are near extinction on many, many fronts because of being led and guided by buffoons. You know, this is a political season in the state, so one doesn't like to accuse anyone of being more of a buffoon of, than anyone else. <laughs> enough. There's enough of that label to go around. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah the, 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 it's a big enough label that most anyone involved in that whole situation. So anyway, I like Nicholas Rourke's idea of getting the geniuses of the world together to kind of think things through. Of course, it, it didn't work out because, you know, Stalin came up in in Russia and Hitler came up in Germany and America got into a tuffle with Japan and that led to America and everyone getting into a tuffle with Europe, a European tuffle. And sort of the whole thing just fell apart and uh, uh, hopes of it going. So it was, it was we, could, we could say it was, it was like uh, a premature a preterm birth, what do you call it? If a child comes yeah, out yeah, of yeah, yeah. It was a, a miscarriage, it became a miscarriage. Yeah. It died before it was born. Yeah. It only existed for 10 or 12 years, but Einstein signed on to it. And oh. many of the great thinkers of the world signed on to it. I didn't know there was an Einstein connection. That's it's interesting. Yeah. 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 So this is actually kind of a deep thing, obviously, like, you know, not in our show notes, but like you went like going to this place is very good <laughs> because I think it's, it's something that people really feel. And I, uh, and I, if I talk about it very personally, you know, my own personal experience with this was like, I don't know why I can do anything about this macro level. Mm. Maybe some Rorick person could do something, but I don't know if I can do anything about this. And I maybe growing up in America, you get a little bit despondent. Because you feel like, well, the macro level is out of control. We don't know what we can do. So all of a sudden, you sort of focus on the micro level of the individual people around you, you know, and yourself. And maybe that's the way you can make a contribution to the world. 
Um, how do you think about that with your students, Lama Glenn? I mean, there's this huge overwhelming problems and then there's also the problem of each person trying to develop themselves. Uh, how well, do you think about I that? think with a teacher of Mahayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, I am a strong adherent to the idea that the individual motivation is extremely important. And if every person does their best for their own enlightenment uh, on the one hand, and secondly, to be kind and gracious to all other living, all other beings. When we say all other living beings, it doesn't mean all other humans, it means trees and grass and rivers and clouds. <laughs> we say Ten Ten Tempe Kelkor in Tibetan, the supporting and supported mandalas or the supported and supported sources of joy, <laughs> something like that. And I think that's the best place to start is by trying to become a universal hero, heroine or a bodhisattva that uh, to, from one's own side to try to cultivate one's own inner calmness, inner, as they say, ethics, meditation, and wisdom of examining the, the inner, one's inner life, nature of self, one's inner life. Those three as the foundation, then the six paramitas on the basis of that is are called to be a generous with all living beings and to be ethical with all living beings, to be patient and forgiving with all living beings, to be only joyful with others, regardless of what kind of rectum apertures they are, to always bring joy to one's every activity, and to cultivate daily quiet and contemplation. Because without that, everything, one just becomes all tied up in knots inside, it becomes part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And finally, to develop the three kinds of wisdom, so sort of a sense of the infinity or vastness of being, and at the same time, the kind of specific precision of the finite aspect of the moment. And thirdly, how always to express oneself with others in a way that is beneficial and meaningful. So I think beginning with oneself in that way and it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or some other tradition. Well, of course, being a Buddhist, I think uh, Buddhism has some advantages that others don't. Like right now, Gaspé, where I am, you know, I grew up Church of England, which I guess in England, in America, that's the uh, Episcopalian Church. We weren't allowed to call it the Church of England anymore down there. <laughs> the <laughs> but, you know, I think there is... In the Christian or the Jewish tradition, the idea of God made the earth in six days and then took a rest. I think we have to think if he did take a rest, it was rather a bad idea because the project wasn't very well finished yet. Or he took the rest on the sixth day, leaving a little bit for us to take care of ourselves. <laughs> so I think as a Buddhist, I think uh, sort of ethics, meditation and cultivation of Wisdom of one's own inner functioning is very, very important. And the six paramitas. And of those six, I think inner joy is the most important in terms of benefiting others, at least. And uh, 
feeling good about yourself. In other words, noticing that joy is a switch you control. It's not a response to a pleasant stimulation, <laughs> stimuli. It's, a, it's an inner switch that you can keep turned on. And I think if people do that, everyone is going a little bit in the right direction. And not that everyone has to be uh, any religious or irreligious person, as Dalai Lama often likes to say, my religion is compassion. <laughs> <laughs> and compassion's okay, but like Chogyam Trumpa says, you have to be careful it doesn't become idiot compassion, which is why the bigger Buddhist context of the three trainings and the six paramitas are important kind of uh, backgrounds to that statement by the Dalai Lama. Well, that's what I've sort of noticed about your um, teachings, Lama Glenn. Uh, things that jump out at me always are, on the one hand, the joyfulness of it, you know, which I think comes through in a conversation like this. You know, you're 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 pre presenting a joyful spirituality, and I think sometimes people don't see that. Daniel and I have talked about it a lot. They don't see the spiritual life as being necessarily a joyful thing, but to know, learn about yourself, to change yourself, to transform yourself, to grow and develop is one of the biggest joys you're going to experience. And the fact that that can also affect other people is a joy. And then I think you also, you know, people use the word emptiness, shunyata. And what always strikes me when you talk about that is the interconnectivity aspect of it too, that things are entwined. And so yeah. one thing and other things change too. Change yourself, other mm -hmm. things change. Yeah, I mean, a problem with translation of, you know, any tradition from one language into another language is those words in one language will not have the full meaning of words in, a, in the other language. Well, you know, often when we look at these things, what is said in one tradition has many layers of meaning. So with Guya Samaja Tantra, said every word in Guya Samaja Tantra has six levels of interpretation. And uh, I think, you know, a problem is people can become the spiritual tradition in the Western world, you know, traditional spirituality, European spirituality, tended to be rather joyless, I would say. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, Eve and the sexual issues with this, you know, fig leaves and a snake and an apple or something like that is all gets a little bit confusing. And somehow sex comes out as kind of something a little bit, got us kicked out of paradise. <laughs> Was it worth it? Wow. I, I mean, sex is nice, but <laughs> paradise. <laughs> so, you know, there's kind of a, and, you know, there's a whole tradition in the, in the early period of Christianity in Europe. Laughter is the voice of the devil and stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, as, as you know, Eric, I mostly teach tantric Buddhism uh, as kind of the pinnacle of Buddhist, Buddhist tradition. And the idea that every experience we should regard ourselves as a playful tantric deity. And whatever occurs to us, we should, from other outside beings, we should embrace it with a kind of a, a playful, joyous quality, a theatrical quality, and not rely upon the ordinary appearance of things. Because always everything has many levels. And you know, if you're married, for instance, you see this very clearly, right? Your wife 
is in a bad situation in her in her life, you know, her sister's sick or something's happening, she's in a bad mood. And so the food doesn't taste that good. <laughs> now you'd never know it from eating the food that the situation was linked to the, the her worry about her wife. And so she got the, you know, the meal wrong or, you know, you're, you got, you're the cook and you got it wrong. Your wife eating it wouldn't have noticed that, oh, it's because, you know, your brother just hit by a car or blah, 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 or, you know, something like that. So there's always many aspects to every experience and culture versus nurture and all this kind of stuff. But both of those are at play in every situation. I think the tantric idea of never accepting anything at face value and always trying to embrace everything in a joyful, playful way. I was just watching a comedian on this the other day, taking Mel Brooks, <laughs> uh, Mel, Mel Brooks uh, sort of take on comedy as oh, the, yeah. the best way to embrace tragedy. And many of the best comedy pieces, comedians come out of sort of tragic circumstances and their tragic, their comedy often deals to some extent with tragedy. And then I think that's really what this tantric teaching on see yourself as a playful tantric deity, whatever occurs to you as part of some sort of enlightenment celebratory drama, regardless of what it is. Now, you know, yea, though we walk through the valley of death, we fear no evil. We are walking through a valley of death, as Jim Morrison of the Doors puts it. Mm. But nobody gets out alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're surrounded by death, we're surrounded by disease, we're surrounded by tragedy. But amidst all of that, there's also great joy and there's, you know, babies born and flowers blooming and uh, beautiful sunshine and well, many, many wonderful things. So it's easy to look at the harshness and take that as something very, very significant and then overlook the joy or look at the joyful things and take that as the quality, but then you're overlooking that tragic side mm -hmm. how to embrace both the beautiful and the horrid <laughs> in a meaningful, joyful way. So I think that's a challenge of every human being in their life. And I think every spiritual tradition you know, discusses this to some extent. You know, in the, my Christian tradition I was brought up in, it's like, well, the ways of God are mysterious and eventually you'll find out. I mean, that's kind of okay, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I do prefer the tantric teaching on the three training, six paramita and the playful deity yoga. So on the deity yoga, um, about that set of ideas, because I think a couple of things you said that really struck me for people who would be listening to this would be, on the one hand, there's this idea of bringing the locus of joy more internal. So even if the external circumstances can go, and they're going to be at some point or another like that, there's this learning that you can still bring that joyful thing up inside of you, um, you know, through your own training and experience. And then there's that idea that you see yourself as sort of a divine being, you know, in uh, Buddhism, you'd see yourself as, you know, one of the images of uh, enlightenment. Um, 
some of the people we'd be who would be listening to this don't have that specific initiations and training in that. But is, is there a way you can advise people to do that who are just listening who you know, maybe don't have specifically tantric Buddhist teachers teaching them that? But well, you know, I do think that, I do think that Einstein got a lot of these kind of relativity ideas from the Buddhist tradition because, of course, he grew up speaking the German language, and uh, you know, Buddhism, the first continental European Buddhist tradition was really, school of study was really the German, Russian a little bit earlier, but in, in the Western Europe then the German. And he brings a lot of very interesting terms into his discussion of things that are inspired by Buddhist terms, as you can tell, yeah. kind of from the German. <laughs> so he speaks about uh, optical delusion. And that's a very wonderful word, I think. When we talk about how we experience things, it is an optical delusion. <laughs> we experience things completely as though everything we're experiencing is, ex is separate from us. But at the same time, we're just experiencing it as an inner phenomena. We're not experiencing the outer phenomena. We're just all we have is the inner phenomena. <laughs> the, uh, we only can access the outer phenomena through the inner phenomena. Yeah, In other yeah. words, the inner phenomena, when I look at a mountain, I'm not seeing the mountain. I'm seeing the way the mountain is processed by my perceptual and conceptual apparatus. And so I think it's a very wonderful word he used, optical delusion. And then he says, uh, this gives us the sense that wherever we are, whatever we are most close to is more important. So the mountain next to me is more important than the mountain 10 miles away. Mm, yeah. person next to me is more person important than the person three blocks down the street and so on. But as he points out again, this is completely an optical delusion. The, the finest particle of matter is Content connected with all other things, or everything is interconnected. So we have to step beyond that, what Einstein calls optical delusion, and notice the interconnectedness of all things. And when we notice that interconnectedness of all things, then of course that takes us to the other side of that discussion in Nagarjuna, or the Indian word shunya, or emptiness the infinity of things, the interconnected of all things, the other side of interconnectedness of all things is the infinity of all things. And so I think whether or not, as Dalai often puts it, whether or not you're a follow, a, an adherent of a particular tradition or whether you just learn some techniques for self-observation and philosophical spiritual cultivation isn't so important. Uh, the important thing is that we point the mind toward actual reality, like the word Dharma, which often is translated as religion in English, literally means that which is, Rangingo Zimba, that which demonstrates a particular nature, something which can be apprehended as having a particular nature. In other words, a kind of a reality factor, you could say. 
So we're all dealing with the same reality and we may use different words for it. And some traditions might have a more sophisticated language for it. And um, others might have a more sophisticated sort of spiritual approach to it and so on. And these are one aspect of things, but the other aspect is we all have the same reality. As Dalai Lama puts it, every human has one nose, two ears, two eyes, one mouth. And I would add an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As, so, as they say in the, the medical literature, nine apertures. <laughs> yeah, the Chinese, nine openings in the body, only seven are up here. Yeah. Actually, if you're a woman, 10, just to acknowledge <laughs> it, right? Yeah. Hmm. So the thing in the uh, in the uh, in the what was amazing to me going into the Tibetan tantric Buddhist world was they have all of these kind of interesting, like I guess you'd say techniques, you know, to help you accomplish this. And so one of them that you brought up was this idea of uh, um, kind of revisualizing your environment. And I think when I first heard that, I was like, what are they asking me to do exactly? But you realize that there's something really powerful about that if you're like, you know, if you have your significant other yeah. and all of a sudden they're being a pain in the ass and you see them as Tara, that just feels different. <laughs> you know, a, yeah. a, a problem we have with everything with humans is that humans are habit, are creatures of habit. Like, for instance, you know, people smoke and they might think smoking is bad for them, but then they've been smoking and so the natural momentum is to smoke and to change that momentum is a problem. Now, for instance, we know that certain kind of industries are terrible for the environment and terrible for people's working in them and so on. But our whole say economic system has its own kind of momentum, right? And if we close down that industry, you put 5 million people out of jobs, and then that's a whole that's a whole process of momentum. That momentum of those five million people has to be redirected and re, re retuned. It's a not a small thing. And everything in our life, everything is momentum. I look at a friend as a friend, and the momentum is there to see him with friendly eyes. And I'll look at someone who's been difficult to me with, um, you know suspicious eyes or cautious eyes and that momentum is there and it's the same thing with all phenomena we experience them on a kind of a predisposition display you could say when we smell coffee we think good but you know the first time coffee was introduced people smell it and what's that stink yeah, yeah. like the other day my niece gave me some moose meat because of my great great nephew killed a moose the moose hunting season had just opened and I cooked it and the whole house smelled like moose for like 24 hours Jamie so you know this whole kind of momentum thing is there once the aroma is in the house getting it out or if someone smokes in their house getting this aroma of the smokehouse is not easy so I think when we see our body as the body of a deity, in other words, this body is pure wisdom, pure light. It's not just meat, flesh, blood, bone, shit, piss, and so on. It's uh, really a, just a kind of field of energy. It's just E equals MC squared. Every molecule, every atom is E equals MC squared. <coughs> 
and the world around us appears like, yeah, that's like an ugly house, or that's an ugly person, or that's an ugly dog, or that's an ugly street, and so on. Really, again, it's just equals MC squared. It's just pure energy bound and manifest in a particular way. But when we look at it with a sort of a way of looking, influence very much. And so it's a little bit like that with everything we see, it is what we make it more. As, as expression in English goes, beauty is in the eye of the perceiver. And uh, the point of seeing the world as this sort of emanation of wisdom, emanation of mandala. You could say it's a little bit like an early movement that came into the European Christianity coming over from India, where the whole sort of becomes a, not really pantheistic, but kind of where the whole world is a manifest of godliness, God energy or something like that. Every tree, every rock, every... Uh, if we look, so in the Buddhist world, when we look at this thing, isn't just what it appears to be, but it is a kind of a pure energy unsullied from the beginning, appearing in a particular way because of my relationship with it. So if I change my sense of self, I change my sense of relationship with it. 